the supernatural as something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And we are here to talk with you about the paranormal, as we are each and every Saturday night. And this week we are going to be talking about, well, not necessarily paranormal. Well, I'm sure we'll get into some paranormal stuff for sure with our guest tonight, Carl Johnson. But we're going to be talking about H.P. Lovecraft. He is uh, he is Providence, according to his headstone. Uh, but for those of you who are fans of the horror, science fiction, just that whole genre, you know the name of H.P. Lovecraft. And we'll be discussing his life and work with Carl, who has an event coming up next Sunday, the 14th, in honor of H.P. Lovecraft. We'll talk about that and more. Uh, and, of course, those of you who are longtime listeners of the show, you know Carl Johnson as one of the twin demonologists, along with his brother Keith, who is a frequent guest here on Spooky South Coast, just with us a couple of weeks ago. And uh, they are always fascinating to talk with because they have taken on some cases that other investigators probably wouldn't touch. And Keith and Carl just take it with a grain of salt. They're like, yeah, well, you know, it was a demonic. We did what we had to do. And so we'll talk with him about that. And later on, I believe Keith is actually going to join us as well. Uh, he's participating in an online chat uh, earlier this evening, so uh, he, he should be joining us later on as well. And who knows what other surprises we have in store. There's always a, a fun time here on the Big Spooky South Coast program. Now, before we uh, get into the interview with Carl, Matt, I want to discuss the other media venture that we were involved in this past week. Uh, you were, of course, always part of 30-odd minutes, but I had my first experience with the oddball crew and uh <laughs> interesting it was, isn't it yeah, absolutely it was a lot of fun and it came out great uh andy did an awesome job he's working a, that he's camera. a heck of a photographer isn't he considering what he had to do <laughs> running up and down those narrow stairs and getting from room i mean i was having a hard enough time you know when i i looked at the sheet when uh when we had the you know yeah. the rundown of wh- where what rooms we needed to be in at what time and i'm looking at it i'm like Huh, Jeff knows me. Jeff knows me pretty well. I think he was quite aware of the fact that I was the fattest guy <laughs> in the house, but he had me going from the attic it's to the basement. basement. <laughs> but uh, I just felt bad, uh, felt bad for Andy Lake because he's he's going up and down those stairs more often than anybody. Well, Jeff too. Yeah. But uh, Andy's carrying a you know forty five pound camera on his shoulder while he's doing it. But it just it turned out amazing, uh, and it truly was one take. And it worked out well. Every one of our shows is one take. Which is fine when you're in the cable access studio and that's the way it has to be. It's a different story when you're on location and you think, all right, well, maybe this time we'll fudge it a little bit, but nope. Nope, that's the way we roll. Not 30-odd minutes. And it turned out wonderful. If you you would like to check it out, you can go to 30oddminutes.com. And it's also, I know that it's also uh, available as a download from iTunes yes. and various other spots as well. So, And the one comment that I saw the other night, somebody had written that they thought it was a great episode, but they wanted to know where was the silent assassin. Yeah. And he, didn't, he didn't make it that yeah, night. did not. That's because you knew that you were going to have to run up and down stairs. That's huh? true. I don't run for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even. Not even ghosts. 
<laughs> you don't run for them or from them. Either way. Yeah. As long as running is involved. Well, uh, we, we recommend that you check that out. And you should check that show out every week. And uh, there's there's tons of great episodes that you've done. I mean, just some of the fascinating people. A lot of them are people that you've heard on Spooky South Coast, yeah. but some of them are, are really impressive. You had a, 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 a scientist on uh, the week before. On robotics. That, yeah. And, the, yeah, and cyborgs. That yeah. was fascinating. It's just... It's unlike anything that you've seen out there. It's, it's, I guarantee you it's probably on your cable access station. Just look at your schedule and figure it out. We are across the country, actually, in a lot of cable stations. Believe so if you, are, if you are listening to this program, you have access to it either on your television or on your computer. And if you're not watching it, you should be. Because sooner or later, it's, it's going to go big time. It just might. I, I, I have confidence. Still waiting for us to do that. but uh, Hey. I... Uh, I, I'm comfortable with where we are. We've done very good for ourselves. I mean, well, that's because this guy makes twice as much as we do at our day at the day job, so he can be comfortable. We we want to be radio stars, Matt. We're <laughs> we we want to thank everybody too that's been making donations. Uh, a few more donations came in this week, uh, including one today. So we thank you all very much uh, for doing that. And this we are we're like I was, I was telling Matt Costa this the other day. We're like the PBS of paranormal radio. Because we are supported by listeners like you, yeah, uh, we are. We're, we're basically we're publicly funded now, so uh, that is, I, I I guess, you know, holds us to a little bit higher esteem, uh, a little bit higher. Uh, a standard. Standard. Well. Yes. Yeah. So we'll try to live up to it, but no guarantees. All right, why don't we take a break, and when we come back on the other side, we'll talk with Carl Johnson. And if you want to join in the discussion at any point during the night, just give us a call, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. You can also email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com, and that's the website where you can go to take part in everything to do with the show. Click on the chat link. It'll push you over to our buddy Craig's site, and you can join in the chat room there while the show's in progress. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And joining us on the line is Carl Johnson. You know, you know the Johnsons. How can you not? If you're into the paranormal, they're they're the first of all, they're the only twins that I know of, besides the Starborn Support twins. But uh, Keith and Carl are the only twins that I know of. There may be others. What working in this field? Uh, Jack and Jim Wiener from the Allegash. Okay. Do uh, you want me to keep going? I'm, I'm waiting for you to get to, like, you know, the Budweiser twins <laughs> or any of the, uh, you know, maybe the uh, the Bella twins. No? So there's no hot female twins working in the paranormal. No, how about no. the conjoined twins? Now, I think more of these twin paranormal investigators need to come out of the closet. Sure. They're not owning up to it. Well, and that's one thing I've never actually asked either you or Keith is, you know how we always talk about how twins have the extra 
uh, sense of perception between the two of them. Uh, I mean, how, does that definitely benefit yourself and Keith when you're working together on an investigation? Well, there has to be something to it since we once shared an umbilical cord. There has to be a connection there that lingers. And, yeah, we have uh, – Keith and I have some differing views in our approach to paranormal investigation, but we work very well together. You know, And, of course, Keith works with his wife, Sandra, as well. So we, we all have a uh, common modus operandi, you might say. And, yeah, Keith and I do rely on our common intuition. It, it does come in handy sometimes. Like, I'll finish his sentence or he'll finish mine. That, it saves some conversation. Well, better him than the EVP finishing Yeah, finishing or saying our names, which has happened. Well, but is there... Uh... If there's an experience that happens to one, does it happen to the other? Is it? Are you kind of on the same frequency so that if if one of you is perceiving something, the other one does too, or is it individualized in that regard? You know, in all seriousness, that has happened in paranormal investigation during our tenure with TAPS and before and since uh, with New England Anomalies Research. Yes, uh, sometimes uh, we seem to sense if... Uh, if a presence, an unseen presence, a spirit, is of uh, human or non-human origin, and I think we both pick up on that, we have very similar views. We, we might debate in the origin of, uh, of spirits or demons, but uh, we know how they function and what needs to be done. And uh, so we're connected in that way, that we, we have that same view and same purpose and... Uh, We'll tend to go about uh, assisting with a with a paranormal case in the same ways. It's it's interesting when siblings alone can get involved in this together because I can tell you in my own family, you know, there's internal debate about whether or not ghosts are real. You know, some want to believe, some don't. But to to have somebody that you're for good or bad, you know, having a twin, you know, that there's the constant competition between the two of you and there's also the fact that you always have somebody else to to lean on so uh, to for both of you to be involved in the field uh, i think is uh, definitely a benefit and then there are both factors definitely you know there's sometimes competition but uh, more cooperation than anything else and those times when keith and i were able to investigate together yes it uh we have that commonality, that understanding. As I said, we sometimes will finish each other's sentences, and uh, we hardly need to communicate about how we're going to proceed because we both know why we're there. If it's a paranormal research, paranormal case, uh, we both know what we want to do. We've, we've been together long enough. But I think also a lot of that, too, comes with being such seasoned investigators. Uh, at this point, you guys have been investigating cases together since, what, the, the 70s? Since the 70s, we're dating ourselves. Who else is going to? Yeah. But, yeah, since the 1970s when we first uh, had the acquaintance of Ed and Lorraine Warren, and that kind of kicked off our uh, our official paranormal investigating careers. Uh, when we uh, attended a lecture presented by Ed and Lorraine Warren, Ed has since passed away, you know, four and a half years ago, Ed departed this year, and we attended a lecture presented by Ed and Lorraine Warren at Rhode Island College in the early 1970s. And uh, we pretty much knew that's what we want to do. We want to be paranormal investigators. We'd had some interesting experiences growing up in North Situate. Uh, there wasn't much avenue at that time to explore the paranormal. You pretty much did it on your own. There wasn't a big call for ghost hunters. But um, when we met Ed and Lorraine Warren, we said, yes, people can do this. People can actually... Uh, take a dignified approach to paranormal investigation. 
Of course, back then, 35 years ago, it was called parapsychology. Nobody was saying paranormal. And now people more frequently use the term paranormal. That's a little, bit, a little bit more marketable. That's what yeah, it <laughs> tends to be easier to say for, for certain. And, of course, Keith functions very well with the assistance and um, cooperation of Sandra, his wife. Uh, she's also a seasoned paranormal investigator, and uh, they've they've worked together uh, so intensely and so frequently that they they know what they're about. They know how they're going to enter a case, how they're going to handle it. So there's with Keith and Sandra and myself. There's really not a lot of conversation necessary. We don't have to you know break away and discuss how we're going to approach it. We, intuitively, we know. And intuitively, we know. Just in terms of time saving, that's that's going to be a huge benefit. Yeah, because it, you avoid uh, a lot of the, you know, the, the the basically what I call the the Scooby Doo discussions. <laughs> where, <laughs> you know, now that you know that it's there, you have to figure out what plan of attack you're going to take, and and usually get to listen to Fred. I don't know why they always listen to Fred too. He was usually wrong. <laughs> yeah, was he the guy with the scraggly little beard? I think so. Yeah. No, that is Shaggy. Shaggy knew oh, the stuff. Shaggy, yeah. Shaggy knew his stuff. They knew when to run and when to stick around. Stick around when there's food, run when there's ghouls. They were That's right. true. So, now, was your interest in H.P. Lovecraft, was that something that started before you became a paranormal investigator? No, the interest in paranormal research was, uh, that preceded my interest in H.P. Lovecraft. But I have been involved in Lovecraft studies and promoting uh, the renown, the legacy of H.P. Lovecraft for quite some time now. And it, it actually began in Providence, Rhode Island. I was uh, working in an art store, block artist, artist materials. I can say that since they're out of business now. <laughs> yeah, but I, I was with them for the last nine years of, uh, of their business. And I was making a delivery uh, in Providence. And uh, I had read some biographic material of H.P. Lovecraft, and I had read one of his stories. I had read The Dunwich Horror by H.P. Lovecraft. And um, while I was making a delivery during the workday, it occurred to me, while this was way back in 1987, I vaguely recalled that H.P. Lovecraft had died in the year 1937. So... I was thinking, this is the 50th anniversary of H.P. Lovecraft's passing, and to my knowledge, nobody's having any kind of commemorative service. Nobody's giving any recognition, uh, any recognition to H.P. Lovecraft, who uh, was born, lived most of his life, did most of his writing, and died in the city of Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, so I decided to undertake to uh, present a modest commemoration. Uh, so I did some research. I went to the Providence Public Library and uh, reaffirmed that H.P. Lovecraft had indeed passed on in the year 1937. He had died on the Ides of March, March 15th, 1937. Um, so I figured, well, that gives me two months to arrange something. Uh, in preparation for this tribute service, I did some research on H.P. Lovecraft to write an article about Lovecraft, just to notarize the event. And as I read more and more biographical material about H.P. Lovecraft, Howard Phillips Lovecraft, I became fascinated with the man as a person, even more than his writings. Uh, so this, this article was published in several local periodicals. And the service took place on Sunday, March 15, 1987, the 50th anniversary of H.P. Lovecraft's death. Uh, in Swan Point Cemetery, where he is buried. Now, 
I presume there would be probably a dozen horror fiction fans showing up for this. That was good. But to my surprise and my delight, one about 100 people showed up to that wow. event. Some of them had, had read the article and, you know, some other people had heard about it. And people came from New York. There was a couple from California. Some people came from Canada to pay their respects to H.P. Lovecraft on the 50th anniversary of his passing. Well, it, there must have been a few people, too, who were probably meeting there even prior to, to your first commemoration of it, because in 1977, fans got together and purchased his headstone. That's true, yes. So, I mean, I'm sure there was a, a few people who were already making their own personal pilgrimages, but they were just waiting for someone like yourself to come along and, and turn it into a, a regular event where they could commemorate his life and his work. Well, that's the service I performed. That's where I came in. I actually brought people together. Some of those people who uh, contributed to purchasing H.P. Lovecraft's headstone, which, as you mentioned, was uh, placed on his gravesite 40 years late, uh, were at that first tribute service and have attended others since then. Yes, the the headstone on H.P. Lovecraft's grave was placed 40 years after his death, 1977. Ten years later, when I was first becoming interested in the writings and the life of H.P. Lovecraft and his entire legacy, I undertook to perform this tribute service. And I did so for the next four years. Uh, then I took some time off. For a time, I lived in New York and New York State. And uh, my brother Keith would go to the gravesite on or around March 15th, and it was you know, the anniversary of Lovecraft's passing. Keith told me, you know, every time I go there in the spring, or, you know, well, March 15th or around March 15th, late winter, there are always people showing up around the gravesite, and they ask me, is there going to be a tribute service? So uh, I recommenced doing these in um, 1998, and I have performed them ever since. And it, it seems like uh, each year, you know, the, the word starts to get out a little bit more and more. And now you've got the kind of the crossover. People who might not have known Lovecraft or his work but are fans of the paranormal and recognize your name from that and are now coming to find out more about H.P. Lovecraft. Yes. Well, uh, people who attend the tribute services or contact me in the interim, um, they either are familiar with Lovecraft and want to know how I got interested in H.P. Lovecraft, uh, or they uh, know very little about H.P. Lovecraft, except they've heard his name. Uh, they know he was a horror fiction writer from Providence, Rhode Island, and they want to learn more. So um, it's actually a forum for networking. The uh, horror fiction fans, the Lovecraftians especially, convene on uh, the Lovecraft tribute and keep in touch uh, during the year. So it's actually an educational program, besides a, a very enjoyable occasion. Uh, when people attend the H.P. Lovecraft, especially those who are coming for the first time, uh, people usually expect it's going to be horrific and very dark and morbid. And actually, there's quite a bit of levity. There's uh, comedy in the H.P. Lovecraft. We have a good time with it. And there is certainly a measure of... Uh, horror fiction as we read uh, the stories of H.P. Lovecraft. I need a link. Oh, uh, oh! by the way, my lovely girlfriend Dina is trying 
to hook on to the show uh, through her computer, and no matter how she tries, she can't get through to it through Spooky South Coast. Could we just take a moment, and could you give me a link that she could access the show through? Sure, just try going right to WBSM.com. WBSM.com. And there should be a Listen Live link right there, too. Okay. And also, we'll throw out a plug for the chat on uh, SpookySouthCoast.blogspot.com. The live chat room also has a link there in which you can uh, listen to the show. Matt Costa, our producer, is just going to run out and check and make sure that it's actually streaming because sometimes they have to turn it off. They were running the Red Sox earlier in the day, and they have to turn it off for the Red Sox game. So it... Yeah, she's got people waiting to plug into the show, uh, and they're relying on her. So she's going to try. Yeah, if she doesn't get through, she'll be back. All right. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. Well, and uh, it, let us know if there's any problem. Matt, is it working? Sure. Streaming? All right. He says that it should be streaming, so... Should be streaming now, Dina. Somehow it should uh, come through. The the magic of technology. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll talk more about Dina later. <laughs> Once she logs in okay, successfully. So this year's event is going to be next Sunday, March 14th, from 3 to 4 p.m. at the Ladd Observatory uh, at 210 Doyle Avenue on the corner of Hope Street in Providence. And this is a, a place that was actually uh, significant in Lovecraft's life. Yes, as a matter of fact, it was. All your information is correct. Uh, Lad Observatory is where H.P. Lovecraft first became enamored of astronomy. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was an avid amateur astronomer in his younger years. And um, beginning when he was 10 years old, H.P. Lovecraft used to bicycle over to Lad Observatory on the east side of Providence where he lived. Um, and he would use their big refractor telescope there. Um, 12-inch refractor telescope, and Ladd Observatory was built and opened in 1891. H.P. Lovecraft was born in 1890, so uh, young Lovecraft would bicycle over to Ladd Observatory and take notes, learn about astronomy, and published articles that were very erudite. Uh, they appeared in local papers, and people who read the astronomy column by H.P. Lovecraft assumed it was a professional astronomer writing this column, and actually it was uh, 11, 12, 13-year-old H.P. Lovecraft. So H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's mother had bought him a telescope, I believe, for his, uh, his ninth birthday, and that started him on the road to amateur astronomy, and then he, uh, he knew Lad, Obser- uh, Lad Observatory was nearby. And the reason we have these tribute services at Lad Observatory now, and this will mark the fifth consecutive year that we've presented the service at Ladd Observatory, uh, is to allow attendees to photograph and film the proceedings because uh, we aren't allowed to take pictures in Swan Point Cemetery where H.P. Lovecraft is buried. So uh, Ladd Observatory seemed an appropriate setting. Besides, people can come inside, have a brief tour of the observatory and use the bathrooms, and then we present the tribute service out on the front lawn of Ladd Observatory. And H.P. Lovecraft's gravesite is precisely two miles north of Ladd Observatory. So after the formal proceedings at Ladd Observatory, uh, attendees are invited to journey over to Swan Point Cemetery and pay their respects at H.P. Lovecraft's gravesite. We just don't take pictures there. We're told by security at Swan Point Cemetery that it is an issue of privacy. Sure, I can understand that because yeah. I'm, I'm sure being an older cemetery, there's probably a lot of gravestones kind of close together. And They are, yes, and some people have objected to uh, 
photographs of their relatives, their deceased relatives being displayed in newspapers. So I can understand that. Uh, so out of respect to Swan Point Cemetery and their policies, we'll conduct the formal proceedings at Ladd Observatory. People can take their pictures and uh, film the proceedings, then go over to Swan Point Cemetery and see where the master, H.P. Lovecraft, is interred. His well, final resting, or maybe in his case, resisting place. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned how he wanted to be an astronomer, and I was I was reading a little bit earlier today about his actual life, and I'm familiar with his name and I'm familiar with his work, but I'm not familiar with who he was as a person. And I understand that, actually, as a high school student, he had issues uh, with mathematics, and he, he actually missed his high school graduation because he kind of had a crazy home life growing up. Have you done your research on H.P. Lovecraft? You seem to know something about his background. I, I've done a little bit of research. Sure. You, know, you know what's you know what's sad, Carl? I'm sorry to admit. I realized today that I've actually never read a Lovecraft's work. Ooh, well. I'm familiar with him, and I, re- I remember learning about him in high school, but I've never actually read. Outside of maybe a few things that might have been in an anthology book I read in high school, uh, I've never really delved into his work. Uh, what would I recommend to you? I would say, as a primer, you might want to start off with reading one of his shorter stories, The Rats in the Walls. Okay. Now, his writing style in The Rats in the Walls was very much influenced by Edgar Allan Poe. Lovecraft revered Poe. That was one of his major influences. Um, in fact, some of Lovecraft's earlier poetry very much resembles Edgar Allan Poe's. Uh, as With time, he came into his own as a writer. But I would suggest uh, The Rats in the Walls or my personal favorite Lovecraft story, The Color Out of Space. All right. I'll I'll start with those. But it seems like they definitely uh, become involved. I mean, he has uh, a whole whole mythos that's been built up amongst other writers based on his work, too. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, he has. He created his own pantheon of uh, gods and, well, not so much goddesses, but... uh, Let's say entities, uh, titanic beings that came from other worlds and uh, took over our Earth sometime around the dawning of mankind when civilization was just burgeoning. And uh, we have distant memories of these old ones who came to Earth and they were accepted as gods because they were powerful usurpers. Then other extraterrestrials came to earth and suppressed these usurpers and they were banished underground now they lie in wait in caverns subterranean caverns deep under the sea and they're waiting for their time to be called back so they can reclaim dominion of the earth and that is a premise that runs through many of lovecraft's later stories and it's known collectively as the cthulhu mythos the best known of these demon gods, these extraterrestrials, is Cthulhu, great Cthulhu, who uh, waits in his subterranean cave or cavern, uh, waiting to be called forth by his priests and ministers on earth. And I'm speaking in kind of a Lovecraft tone here, his phraseology, while went along these lines. Well, I mean, it's, to, to understand, I mean, I don't, I don't know if, modern literature fans can understand it'd be kind of like if other writers started ad- adopting the 
storylines and the characters and the things that were running through like Stephen King's work. Because mm-hmm. lo- like Lovecraft, I mean, obviously Lovecraft was a huge influence on King, but Lovecraft also would create his own, he'd base some stories in actual locations around Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and other locations he would kind of create, and they would intertwine much like Stephen King does now. Which imbues them with a certain authenticity. Now, Stephen King's topics and locations will jump around, will vary. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was very descriptive in his writings, and he uses uh, either actual locations or uh, or towns and cities that are fictional, but based on places such as uh, Salem, Massachusetts, and uh, fishing villages off the coast of New England. So when you read Lovecraft, you, it's something of a travelogue he presents, and it grips the reader, and you start believing it's real. Uh, it's said that some people have gone absolutely mad from reading H.P. Lovecraft because he is so consistent in his writings that you feel Lovecraft was keyed into some uh, some other reality, that there had to be something genuine to his writings. You know, He, he couldn't have made all this up. At least that's the feeling he gives. Uh, Lovecraft's writings are very convincing. Now, he uses uh, like five and six-syllable words, some of them which are no longer in common use, so it can be a little difficult to read Lovecraft. Uh, even the dictionary doesn't have all of, his, uh, all of his words that he employs in his stories. But when you get into Lovecraft, you, you can't help but put yourself in the narrator's place. And as I said, Stephen King jumps around different locations, different premises, different situations. With Lovecraft, there is a commonality running through his tales. And uh, so you don't get too overwhelmed by Lovecraft, Tim, if you want to start reading Lovecraft. I think actually that probably the best uh, stories to start with would be his shortest stories, um, such as uh, What the Moon Brings. That's a, that's a disturbing little tale. And it's not too long. It's only several pages in a book. Uh, what the Moon Brings is a good one to start with. And then you might get kind of hooked on HBL. And then go over to maybe the color out of space. That's a particularly creepy, chilling story. Well, it definitely sounds like a plan. And, and with you know technology being what it is, it's, it's a lot... It's easily readily available. I mean, I can imagine not just in this area because he's a, a, a relatively local author, no matter you know where you're hearing the sound of our voice over the radio, but also he's so prolific now that you can go anywhere. But I know it was kind of hard at times to, to get a lot of his work when he was writing before. A lot of these stories were only published in, in magazines like Weird Tales. Well, that's just it. Some people who aren't too familiar with H.P. Lovecraft assume that he was a noted author during his lifetime, and he's always been popular. And that really isn't the case. Lovecraft was published chiefly in the what's called the pulp magazine from the cheap pulp paper they were printed on. Weird tales, fantastic stories, the popular magazines in the uh, the twenties, thirties, and forties. These uh, there were, uh, many author, many good authors who came into their own afterwards. Uh, started publishing their stories in these fiction magazines, basically detective stories and, and horror stories. And that's where H.P. Lovecraft found a forum for his literature. So Lovecraft was not a big literary deal during his lifetime. And in fact, Lovecraft would probably have been forgotten as a writer were it not for Donald Wandry and August Durleth, who founded 
Arkham House Publishing Company, and that company was formed specifically to preserve the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. And Arkham House is still with us, even though Mr. Durleth and Mr. Wandry have passed on. But that's why they formed a publishing company, to preserve and promote the writings of H.P. Lovecraft, and uh, therefore H.P. Lovecraft became a phenomenon and a major influence in the genre of horror and fantasy fiction. Good horror is at its best when it's reflective of society, when there's a, a... when there's an underlying truth to the horror more than just something jumping out and scaring you. And that's why a lot of the better horror movies that people will say are, you know, quote-unquote, best ever made are not the slasher flicks. Uh, they're not the Freddy Jason movies, but more, you know, more the psychological horror because they're reflecting themes. And it's the same with horror writers. I mean, King's best work are ones that have certain social themes. Uh, obviously, Rod Serling, with the, the scripts he penned for The Twilight Zone, obviously yeah. had a great social conscience to them. And Lovecraft had a lot of social content to the work he was doing as well. Which, again, gives it a foundation to his work. And the best stories are those that cause the reader or the viewer to care about the characters. I mean, the Freddy Krueger movies, or the Slash Blood Gore movies, Slash Hack Gore, I call them, now, they're very entertaining because you don't know what's going to happen next. Something's going to jump out of you. First, it's the cat that jumps out of the closet. Oh, it's just the cat, and then an axe comes down and some splits somebody's skull. Uh, yeah, they're very entertaining, but you don't take a lot away with you. But the uh, best kind of literature, best kind of movie scripts, screenplays, are those which give you an affinity for the character that cause you to put yourself in the character's place and you Oh, my word, what's happening to this poor person? And that's what Lovecraft had a genius for, for drawing the reader into his stories so you would identify with the narrator. And halfway through that story, you're like, Oh, my God, I've got to get out of this. I can't put the book down, but I've got to get out of this. And it's said that some people have become psychologically disturbed from reading H.P. Lovecraft's fiction. And I'm sure that bears out in some instances. It's that effective. It's that convincing. Well, I mean, that's also, too, I mean, I kind of alluded earlier to his childhood, uh, but that's something that he had to deal with uh, from from what I read. Now, of course, I I glanced a lot of this information off of Wikipedia, which is the always trustworthy, reliable source of information. But uh, apparently his father had a psychotic breakdown and was institutionalized. They think that that might have been in relation to syphilis. And then later on in his life, his mother was institutionalized. And from from what I read, Lovecraft himself had bouts of depression and uh, thoughts of suicide. Oh, yes. And, of course, this is before we had the clinical terms of bipolar and uh, displacement, all those uh, psychological terms. Well, both H.P. Lovecraft's parents died in Butler Hospital uh, in profound states of dementia. Back then, just called insanity and yes uh h.p lovecraft's father winfield scott lovecraft almost certainly was suffering from syphilis which had gone untreated uh i think howard lovecraft's father ignored the progressive syphilis because it would have meant social ruin Mm -hmm. to admit to this and he was just hoping it would go away um and i like to refer to h.p lovecraft's parents with a measure of dignity um Yes, they died insane, but uh, they were still devoted parents. And, uh, yeah, 
probably H.P. Lovecraft's father, as a traveling salesman for the Gorham and Gorham Silver Company, had contracted syphilis. And uh, he, it was hush-hush. This was, uh, well, although they had lost their, their monies, uh, this was a proper New England family, and it was just not to be spoken of. And then H.P. Lovecraft's mother, Susan Sarah Lovecraft, she... Uh, she yeah, I know, Dina. Yeah, she she uh, had some kind of dementia that was never uh, sufficiently diagnosed, but uh, she lingered for some time and was eventually committed to Butler Hospital, and she was having delusions. She believed that dark, shadowy forms were coming into her room and trying to steal her away. Though H.P. Lovecraft harbored a lifelong fear that, that he would die insane, that the madness would overtake him. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was a man of, uh, of strong character and um, uh, certainly a rationalist, but he couldn't avoid that dread that he would contract the madness that seemed to run through his family. Well, this, this article that I read also mentioned that you know he was uh, quite a sickly child and that he suffered from, from terrible night terrors for a time. So it just seems like if there is this dark... Uh, ominous presence around his family life that uh, clearly that would have an influence in his work. Yes, yes, it did. His work is very haunting and very haunted. Um, what frightened H.P. Lovecraft, what terrorized H.P. Lovecraft, he felt would also terrorize his readers, and effectively it did. Um, yes, H.P. Lovecraft did suffer from depression and uh, immense insecurities. Uh, he had a mysterious psychological breakdown in 1908, which prevented him from finishing high school. So H.P. Lovecraft never received his high school diploma, although in his writings with his uh, immense vocabulary, one would think it's a college professor writing these stories. Uh, but, uh, yes, H.P. Lovecraft was somewhat of a tortured soul, and uh, we can't be sure of the demons that uh, pervaded his life and his mentality, but uh, as I wrote in an article once, his was a haunted mind. Um, but H.P. Lovecraft also had uh, a very dignified demeanor, uh, a strong sense of self, and he was devoted to rationality. He was not religious at all. Uh, but H.P. Lovecraft, during his youth, or during his adolescence, was plagued by nightmares, and depression had set in, and it was... Uh, evidently a lifelong struggle with H.P. Lovecraft. Um, he rose above that, though, as best he could. Now, the famous composer, the Russian composer, Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky, he suffered from nightmares as a child. He couldn't get the music out of his head after he attended a, a musical concert, uh, but he became a, a very noted uh, and revered composer. Now, if H.P. Lovecraft's stories had been a success, a financial and literary success during his lifetime, um, perhaps he would have earlier been hailed as a genius, uh, not such an oddball. But yes, H.P. Lovecraft during his early years and continuing through his adolescence was uh, very plagued by nightmares, by migraines, um, by depression, profound depression. We don't know what really caused his rather mysterious breakdown in his 18th year, but... Uh, 
there were setbacks in his family. Their family had lost their fortune. They were once an affluent family in old New England stock. And uh, many things changed for H.P. Lovecraft. His grandfather had to sell and uh, give away his uh, expansive library. Uh, they had to move out of their uh, their manse, their, their big home. And H.P. Lovecraft lost a lot of what he had cherished as a young boy. So um, we'll never know the full story, of course, but uh, depression set in and stayed with H.P. Lovecraft. Well, and even in his early 20s, H.P. Lovecraft regarded himself as middle-aged. It turned out appropriately so since he died when he was 46. It's inter- and I hate to keep going back to, to the idea of Stephen King, but it is relative in the fact that here's one popular writer who did have success in his lifetime. And you know, just as you were speaking before, if Lovecraft had had that success, we might regard differently the way that he grew up. I mean, King often says that his stories come to him in nightmares, and he just wakes up and puts them down and uh, uh, starts typing them in his computer, and they turn out to be million-selling books that make him a lot of money. And he's getting that reverence in his lifetime where Lovecraft didn't, but it's, it's definitely a parallel where you can say that if he had had the same commercial success, we would probably look at his life differently. Oh, if H.P. Lovecraft had been born in 1957 instead of 1937, I think his legacy would have been realized uh, during his lifetime, and he would have been established a lot sooner. It's impossible to say, of course, but Lovecraft had very limited means. He wrote most of his stories in longhand, or he would type them, and uh, of course typing was a laborious process during Lovecraft's lifetime. Um and I don't denigrate Stephen King at all. I like Stephen King's stories. In fact, I wish Stephen King would attend my H.P. Lovecraft tribute. <laughs> Draw more of a crowd. Uh, he's uh, very much an admirer and uh, freely admits to being influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, but yeah, Lovecraft was an anachronism, out of place, out of time. H.P. Lovecraft probably should have been born in the 18th century or in the mid-20th century. Then he could have been more established, but uh, just because of the quirks of Lovecraft's personality, uh, the limitations of his writing style, the physicality of producing his stories, having to write them and type them out, and uh, never finding a bigger publisher to put his stories in the print, so, uh, Lovecraft had these limitations. But now he's come into his own posthumously. But even then, he did have the respect of his peers. I know. Uh... I read somewhere that Richard Block, Edgar Rice Burroughs, these, these writers would communicate with him, and they, they appreciated his work. Yes. Um, another one was Robert E. Howard, Robert Irvin Howard, uh, who was the creator of Conan the Barbarian and Red Sonja and numerous westerns and boxing stories, prolific writer himself. Yes, Lovecraft's correspondence, other writers, uh, they, it's understating to say they admired H.P. Lovecraft. He was their master spirit. Um, and if they had been established, if some of them had been established earlier, they may have helped H.P. Lovecraft along. And in fact, H.P. Lovecraft dispensed quite cogent, valuable advice to young burgeoning writers. He just wasn't very good at self-promotion, but he was a good critic, a good ghost writer, and uh, a good advisor to writers starting out. So it, it's actually rather curious why H.P. Lovecraft wasn't more established during his life. And maybe if he had lived to be older, he would have been, and who knows what he would have written. But he succumbed to intestinal cancer 
when he was 46. And uh, another thing that held Lovecraft back from his writing was that he was such a prolific letter writer. H.P. Lovecraft wrote more than 100 personal letters, pieces of personal correspondence during his life, and many of these were 70 or more pages long and illustrated wow. with his drawings. So that's a, that's a trap that many writers have fallen into. They, they love writing so much, they keep writing letters instead of buckling down to writing stories. Of course, H.P. Lovecraft didn't have a word processor or a word perfect or any you know, computer. Uh, it was a laborious process. Uh, I guess However, the mailman writers, wasn't a yeah. fan of his, though. <laughs> uh, probably not. Well, he, then again, he helped to keep them in business. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, his letters were rather heavy, and uh, I think it was a treat to receive a letter from H.P. Lovecraft, which I had. Well, uh, and of course, if you want to find out more about Lovecraft, absolutely attend this event on Sunday, March 14th from 3 to 4 p.m. at the Ladd Observatory, 210 Doyle Avenue at the corner of Hope Street in Providence. Carl is, of course, the organizer, and your master of ceremonies is Christian Henry Tobler, author and historian. And it's free to the public. Gothic dress is encouraged. So if you have those gothic clothes and you're, you're waiting for an excuse to pull them out, now's the time. You don't have to wait for Halloween or sci-fi conferences. You know, wear your black, sport your uh, gothic duds. Or vintage clothing. You know, I'd love to see people come dressed like an attire of the 19th century. And bizarre is an order for that day. Some people have come masked. Some people wear cloaks and capes and... Uh, that's quite appropriate. I actually like kind of a Mardi Gras flavor for the H.P. Lovecraft tributes because it is a fun event. Now, it's a literary tribute, and I could present this from a podium at a library, but we have fun with it, and uh, that's what people expect. You know, and I think they come away with something. They learn more or share in the H.P. Lovecraft experience, and uh, it's, it's become something of a Providence, Rhode Island tradition since I first began them on March fifteenth, 1987. Well, I was well, just a tyke at the time, of course. It's it's good that somebody is honoring his work, and, and I'm definitely going to start diving into it more myself. Uh, we're coming up on the news now. We're going to take a break. We'll do the Week and Weird after that. But then following the Week and Weird, Carl, we'd like to bring you back, and we'll try and get Keith on as well, and we can talk about a whole bunch more topics, uh, including I want to talk to you guys about the work that you do at Slater Mill, too. Okay, yes, I've, I've got more to go. This hour is going by so quickly. Uh, get back to me. I'll be here. All right, sounds great. Well, we will get back with Carl Johnson in just a few moments. Like I said, we're going to take a break for the news. Then we'll talk about the week and weird. We'll also tell you uh, about an upcoming paranormal conference happening right here on the South Coast next month because we're going to miss some time, I think, because of college basketball. So we want to make sure that we let you know about all this stuff now. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Spooky South Coast is back. Actually, in reality, I am... Charles Bronson. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. No belly. This ain't over. I can swallow your fears. I'm not afraid. You will be. Supernatural or 
Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz. And, uh, wow, what a fascinating first hour with Carl Johnson talking about H.P. Lovecraft. I, again, I'm embarrassed. You know, I was a, an English major in college. I studied lit, and I, I realized I, I didn't really get exposed to a lot of American literature <laughs> during the course of my high school and college English studies. So, I mean, I guess that's probably why I'm not familiar, actually, with reading the work of Lovecraft. But I'm going to remedy that situation for sure. And uh, I'll pick up some of his stuff and, and start getting involved with it because, I mean, great American writers are, in my opinion, you know, they're not appreciated as much as, say, the, the English authors of, of the Romantic period and the Renaissance period. All these all these writers that we study uh, and we love, the Irish poets, all, you know, they they get more than their fair play in curriculums, and the American writers often don't. And so uh, we definitely want to pay more attention to them. And if you're into the paranormal and you're listening to this show, then I know you like horror. So why not pick it up and, and enjoy it yourself? Let me know what you think. All right. Well, one thing that we want to tell you about before we get into the week and weird is a conference that's coming up actually right here on the south coast of Massachusetts. Uh, John Brightman is the founder of New England Paranormal Research, and they'll be hosting a seminar weekend April 16th through the 18th. And, uh, wow, just, this is really jam-packed with, uh, inform- informative talks and investigation. You can learn the behind-the-scenes details of the Freetown State Forest cult activity, murders, and actual police reports of zombie sightings and Indian ghosts. You can understand various demonic entities and how to protect yourself from them. Identify the basic tools required to be a paranormal investigator and the best techniques to use them. Uh, hear several EVPs and figure out what makes them good and bad. Find out how to deal with a demonic presence. Discover the types of audio recorders and software analysis programs available. All this information is going to be there, and it's not going to be coming from, you know, just two guys getting up there and telling you all this. They've, they've got a lineup here of speakers that's, I'm amazed they're, they're bringing these people to the south coast of Massachusetts. We've got, of course, Alan Alves, who you've heard on the show here before, retired Freetown police detective and a leading authority on occult crime. Folks, if you've never heard Alan Alves talk about this stuff, go to this event just for that. The other names are great, but Alan Alves is the person that knows about this stuff. Uh, Chris Balzano's book, Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and the Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest, wouldn't exist if Alan Alves wasn't there to, to share this information with him. Also, there will be Michael Baker, producer of 14 Degrees, uh, a paranormal researcher for Sci-Fi's Ghost, Hunter and, uh, Ghost Hunters and co-founder of Gravity Paranormal Research. Uh, Carl Johnson, of course, will be there, our guest tonight. Keith and Sandra Johnson as well. Uh, Chris Stevens, the author of Fear, A Ghost Hunter's Story. She was one of the paranormal researchers on MTV's Fear, which, for those of you who don't remember, is actually the first paranormal reality show of this current vein. Uh, just uh, because it was kind of hokey the way MTV promoted it, it doesn't really get the respect that it deserves, but it's it's... Imagine everything that you see on Ghost Hunters and, and especially Ghost Adventures. That's what fear was. Except there's a camera pointed right up somebody's nose. Well, that's, yeah, Ghost Adventures uses that camera quite a bit. Do they? Don't they? I, I think don't, so. I don't know. I don't watch it enough. Ghost Buggers. <laughs> there's something on this footage. Oh, no, wait. It was just I sneezed <laughs> on the camera. Uh, also, uh, there will be our friend Shannon Sylvia, who you remember from uh, Sci-Fi's Ghost Hunters International. 
Uh, also, Susan Slaughter and Jane Riley from Ghost Hunters Academy. Uh, Robert Maggio and Tom Carroll from Taps Home Team in Rhode Island. And plus, you can spend a night investigating four of the highly active haunted locations within the Freetown State Forest. John Brightman grew up in Asona and spent his childhood exploring those woods. His family has owned over 60 acres of land there for more than five generations, and he can navigate you through those confusing roads and trails like nobody can. Uh, you can also listen to some of the most famous stories from the Bridgewater Triangle, uh, including serial killers, Wampanoag Indian tribe ghosts, the Carl Drew Shack and murders, burning crosses, the dead newborn in the trash can, satanic cult activity, zombie sightings, puckwudgies, the old woman covered in dirt, just every, every, the mad trucker, everything, all these stories that you've heard about, they'll all be covered. And one of the things that I think is, uh, really interested, really interesting is, um, you'll investigate the Indian ceremonial area, the Asonet Ledge, uh, the Indian Pet Cemetery and the haunted parking lot and the tree where in 1978 John Brightman's own grandfather was the one who found 15-year-old cheerleader and kidnap victim Mary Lou Arruda's body tied to the tree. So there's definitely a lot of dark history uh, out there. And uh, so if you're going to get involved in investigating it, what better time to go out there than with a whole bunch of other people? Because <laughs> we've been out there in those woods in the dark, and that's the best way to do it. So that's coming up, again, April 16th through the 18th. If you want more information, go to neparanormalresearch.com, and you can find out how to sign up and get involved. Uh, and I know that in addition to those excursions out there into the Freetown State Forest, the actual event will be happening in Fall River. So there's there's hotel rooms available, and so if you're coming from out of state or out of town, you'll be able to stay as well. And why not you know, spend a little bit extra money, call up and see if you can get into Lizzie Board and Bed and Breakfast that night too. Highly recommend it. All right. Well, let's get a little weird. More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. (laughs) The Week in Weird. Well, our first story is a little weird because it's about a psychic who's been deemed a fraud. That's weird. This is actually a a pretty big story. For those of you who follow the quote-unquote celebrity psychic world, uh, this, this, this is kind of a big hammer to fall. This comes from the New York Post. Federal regulators filed suit today against a self-proclaimed psychic who allegedly scammed $6 million by conning suckers into believing that his extrasensory abilities would make them, quote, piles of money by trading foreign currencies. Sean David Morton, who bills himself as America's prophet, that was a name given to him by Art Bell, quote, falsely touted his historical success in psychically predicting the various rises and falls of the market, according to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Not, you know, a spooky South Coast, some radio show investigating him to see if he's legitimately a psychic, not a paranormal research group trying to debunk his abilities, not even James Randi saying, you don't meet the million-dollar requirement. We're talking about the Securities and Exchange Commission. This is big-time stuff. The California-based huckster, whose website shows him posing with celebrities including Sting, Robin Williams, and the late Farrah Fawcett, and I'm going to say I saw those photos. Some of them might be impersonators, but anyway... Solicited investors on late-night radio shows and at the 2006 New Life Expo in New York City, the Manhattan Federal Court filing says. 
The suit seeks to put an end to Morton's alleged fraud and force him to cough up his, quote, ill-gotten gains along with unspecified fines. Morton, 51, allegedly lied repeatedly to more than 100 investors in his Delphi Investment Group, which the Securities and Exchange Commission says was not an actual company but was simply a moniker Morton used. He falsely claimed investor funds would be placed into three different accounts called Vara Productions, 27 Investments, and Magic 8-Ball Distributing. That were really just shell companies, the suit says. In reality, the SEC says he invested only about half of the funds with foreign currency trading firms and diverted the rest, including $240,000 that went to a nonprofit religious organization called the Prophecy Research Institute that he runs with his wife, Melissa, who's also named in the suit. So I'm just wondering, do you think we're going to hear about this story on Coast to Coast AM tonight? Maybe not. Since 1991, they've been touting Sean David Morton as one of the world's greatest psychics. I mean, don't get me wrong. Nothing against, uh, nothing against coast to coast. I don't blame them if they were taken in by this guy because obviously a lot of people were. But this is what happens when you, you, you walk that slippery slope of, of giving people this grand stage to share these views. I mean, we have plenty of psychics on the show and we like to try to, you know, have ones that we trust and we believe in. Sometimes people will come at us from left field with a different approach and we'll say, sure, let's Bring them on and find out more about them. And that's fine, too. But it's not like we're bringing them on here for them to start talking about these investment ideas. We just we probably wouldn't get into that on this show, mainly because we don't know enough about finances to know if they're talking out of their yep. butt or not. So. Yeah, we're, we're pretty broke. Yeah. The, you, you <laughs> we know can't what even I, handle our own finances, let alone other people. You know what I consider to be a financial investment? What's up? When I put a dollar into the change machine to get back four quarters. Yep. Score. Every time I break even. I've been investing in lottery tickets all the time. You don't invest in gold? Invest yeah. in gold. <laughs> See my portfolio now online. All right, Matt Costa, what do you have for us? All right. A chilly, the chilly earthquake may have shortened days. The seventh strongest quake in recorded history may have shifted Earth's axis. The massive 8.8 earthquake that struck Chile may have changed the Earth's, the entire Earth's rotation and shortened the length of days on our planet, a NASA scientist said on Monday. The quake, the seventh strongest earthquake in, earthquake in recorded history, hit Chile last Saturday and should have, should have shortened the length of an Earth day by 1.26 microseconds, according to research scientist Michael uh, Richard Gross, NASA's uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. This change should be permanent, Gross said. There's a chance that Earth's rotation could relax over time, but it's too early to, t- to tell, he said. The computer mo- model used by Gross and his colleagues to determine the effects of the Chile earthquake also find- found that it should have moved, the- moved Earth's figure axis by about three inches. Strong earthquakes have altered Earth's days in- and its axis in the past, the 9.1 Sumatran earthquake in 2004, which set off a deadly tsunami, should have shortened Earth's days by 6.8 microseconds and shifted its axis by about 2.76 inches. Uh, Gross said his findings are based on early data available by, on the Chile earthquake. He is confident that his computer's model's accuracy and only slight tweaks expected are required. And that is uh, from space.com. Now, Matt Moniz, 
What exactly is a microsecond? Is that I'm I'm guessing it's smaller than a millisecond. Yes. Is it anything that I should be worried about? Not really. All right. I'm not going to be losing any sleep. Over Put this. it this way: it's it's roughly in the speed of in which um, electrons travel around an atom. It's uh, it, it speeds that you don't need to yeah. be concerned about. Because I, I get upset over daylight savings time, <laughs> and <laughs> if I'm losing microseconds here and there over every every earthquake, I don't know. That's going to throw off my clock. <laughs> <laughs> put put it this way, deciding, you know, what soda to drink or whatever, you spend more time on that than what you've lost in this earthquake. Okay, good. That that work for you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> okay. All right. Natty ice or not? <laughs> yep. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Well, I got something from uh, com. A Polish plumber has uh, become a faith healer after finding a mystical stone while digging up drains under his home. Chet? I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, his name, Jack Smoliski, uh, uh, has uh, been swamped by demands of hundreds of patients since he's pulled the stone from the earth where it lay undisturbed for hundreds of years. It has a huge Z carved into it. And as soon as I touched it, I felt this tremendous energy coming from it, he said. I've had a bad back for years, but all of a sudden, all the pain left me and never returned. He added that his home is in Bailstock. Now, Mr. Uh, Slominski has become a full-time healer and claims that his patients travel hundreds of miles just to touch uh, this healing stone. I don't understand it, but it works, and it's better than fixing broken toilets, he said. I'd rather have a stone that would help me fix my broken toilet. <laughs> hey, if they're you know, donating money to this guy just to touch a stone that he dug up, yeah. I don't blame well, him. I, I actually have, uh, I have a stone that has special powers that you can, you know, if you send me money, I'll let you touch it, too. It's better. Kidney stone. It's better though if you're a plumber. It's it's better for you to charge people to touch your stone than to touch your pipes. Hmm. So, but uh, the the one thing that I I, I do want to say about about plumbing is once once upon a time this guy right next to me, Matt Moniz, had to help me take apart a drain to get a key <laughs> out of it that I dropped, and and that was pretty impressive. That might even have been more impressive than somebody find, than a plumber finding a healing stone. So. But the fact that I actually know how to do a little bit of plumbing? No, just the fact that uh, you saved my ass that day. <laughs> Glad I was able to help. Because that, that was a pretty important key that I lost. And how do you lose a key down a drain, you ask? That's a, <laughs> that's a long story. Yeah. So, all right, that is the Week in Weird for this week. If you have a story you'd like to submit for the Week in Weird, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the Forum tab, go to the Week in Weird thread, drop it in there, and if we use it on the air, you will get a Spooky South Coast bumper sticker. Which is uh, looks really great on the back of a hearse. Does not that I've ever seen one on a hearse, but I'm just saying. <laughs> Somebody wants to put one on one, we won't argue. Remember when they used to do those things on radio stations where think of the craziest place you can stick a bumper sticker and you'll win like a thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah, my dad wanted to stick one on the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> that wouldn't have gone over so well. But uh, if anybody wants to stick a spooky South Coast one on there, hey. 
I actually might be able to get us a Photoshop. Hearse. Photoshop. Don't no, a hearse. Okay. Yeah, I thought you were going to go stick around the Lincoln Memorial. No, no, <laughs> no, no. All right, we'll be right back with more. We're going to talk to not just one Johnson, but two. Keith and Carl will join us on the other side here on Spooky South Coast. From the studios of AM 1420 WBSF into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. It was burning in my room like an oven. (laughs) That's one of the lost gems of the 1980s. Nightmare on my street. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I had one of those, you know, tape tape playing Walkmans, and uh, you know, sometimes like the tape will get jammed a little bit, and uh, it might play something too slow or it'd play something too fast. You know how it would do yeah. that? You know, you know, especially if you had the cheap ones like oh. I did, not the actual Sony's. Well, I remember I was playing the "He's the DJ, I'm the Rapper" cassette tape. Uh, in which case that song was on and it had one of those little hiccups toward the end and it happened to be right at the part where Freddy comes on at the end and he's like oh, I'm your DJ now Princey <laughs> and it just happened to get stuck on that and it was playing it at like the regular speed and I realized that that was actually just DJ Jazzy Jeff running his voice <laughs> through some kind of processor and I was totally disappointed because I thought that they actually got the real yeah. Freddy Krueger to be in the studio Shattered Dreams yep you know the new Nightmare on Elm Street film comes out uh, next next month, I believe, or April. What's this? March? Yeah, so next month. Yep. Are you excited for that, Jackie? Good. Jackie Earl Haley is Freddy Krueger. I'm not. I'm not too sure how I feel about uh, the new uh, the new makeup job and stuff. But have you seen anything? I haven't seen anything. Yeah, I, I saw the some screenshots of the face and stuff. Really? So, Any yeah. good? No, yeah. no. I don't know. Does it, Mixed feelings. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, it's it's gonna be a little bit better. Uh, it's more melted face, not uh, burn face. Hmm. So, well, I mean, they do have to go in a different direction. I know that the the character is gonna be a lot different. He's not gonna be the joke cracking uh, Freddy Krueger that we became used to. It's gonna be more. Uh, they're gonna put a lot more emphasis on the the uh, child molester aspect of it. They do have that fa- that famous scene where the girls in the tub. And the, the the Friday Claw comes up and grabs her. Yeah, I guess they recreated that scene. They use that same so. one. So, I'm tired. One, one phrase I'm tired of hearing though is reboot. I'm tired of hearing reboot. Yeah, you know, stop rebooting films. Either make new ones in that <laughs> series or leave them alone. Don't reboot. Speaking of rebooting, let's reboot our conversation with Carl Johnson. And now we're going to bring in his twin brother Keith Johnson as well. And it's uh, you know. It's double the pleasure, double the fun. All right, guys, uh, you're both with us now. I am here. This is Carl. This is Keith. Luckily, we can tell your voices apart. It might be a little harder for the audiences. <laughs> you see, you're most familiar with now. Yes. Well, uh, and one of the things that I wanted to talk to you both about, and you're both uh, involved in this, is Slater Mill. That's something that we haven't really talked about. And I think, you know, when the weather gets warmer and and uh, we can have a, a, a a nice night where we get everybody to come into the studio. We can have a really uh, good show just talking about the mill and the activity that goes on there. Well, there's plenty.
plenty to talk about at Slater Mill. Yeah, it's been around since 1793, so it's had plenty of time to absorb memories, and sometimes those memories seem to be played back. Yes. Now, there's, there's three buildings on the site. One is, of course, the most famous one is Slater Mill itself, as Carl said, 1793. Uh, the other is the Wilkinson Mill, which is another mill complex that was part of the Slater business. That's 1810, so it's 200 years old this year. And that's an ominous, very ominous-looking building. And there's the Brown House, the Sylvanus Brown House. Now, that's 1758, and uh, a lot of memories have been uh, going on in that place. In fact, it's known as Memory Cottage as well, and it's been moved twice over the years, and it's been moved to the Slater Mill site. Uh, in 1962 to prevent it from being demolished. And uh, 1758, you figure all the living that's gone on, births, living, death, marriages that's been going on in that house. And each place seems to be unique. It has unique aspects to it as far as the uh, paranormal activity goes. So, I mean, you figure with the history of the mills, the uh, labor unrest, the the uh, child labor that went on, plus its historical significance, you know, the uh, birthplace of the American Industrial Revolution, that's, uh, I mean, something's got to be left over, you would think. Well, I mean, we've had the opportunity to investigate uh, a tavern that was built in 1792, 1692. 1692. Yeah. <clears throat> and I can tell you that uh, when, when you have hundreds of it's almost like when you first turn on that tape recorder or first turn on that camera, they're they're just waiting yes. to, to come and share that history with you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, and you really feel part of it when you're on the site. I mean, uh, it's like, and, like really, an, even in the middle of the day, it's an uncanny feeling that uh, you're actually there participating in the history of, uh, of the Slater Mill complex there. Yes, it's like a haunted little village. And Keith mentioned the Wilkinson Mill, built in 1810, and that is a very imposing structure, stone tall, five stories tall, and then there's the yellow-painted Slater Mill, and quaint little memory cottage, uh, the Sylvanus Brown House, built in 1758, relocated to that site, and uh, all three buildings seem to have some measure of paranormal activity there, which has been documented. I, in my experience, the most haunted of the three buildings is the little Sylvanus Brown House. There's a lot going on there, and particularly it seems to be the spirit of a, of a young girl. We say this because we've heard a childlike laughter, and in an EVP, electronic voice phenomena, this spirit identified herself as Rebecca, and that, uh, that was first captured by my girlfriend, Dina Palazzini, and Dina was asking during her paranormal investigation, she said, what's your name, sweetheart? Because there had already been sightings there. We felt it was a child spirit, and we'd heard her laughter. Dina asked, what's your name, sweetheart? When we played back the digital recording, the audio recording, uh, you hear a faint little voice answer, Becca. So we referred to the spirit there, at least one of them, as Rebecca or Becca. And, and the mill itself, I mean, does it just operate solely as a, as a historical building, as a historical monument, a complex? It is a museum. It's a series yeah, of yeah. museums, actually. The buildings have been restored. Slater Mill is restored. 
uh, as a spinning mill, and the Wilkinson Mill was a machine shop through the 19th century, and that has been restored. And in the Wilkinson Mill, there's an array of authentic 19th century machines for metal and woodworking. None of them are replicas. And it also houses uh, a replica of the 1826 wooden water wheel. And that still works. That water wheel, with water power from the Blackstone River, powers the machinery upstairs that we demonstrate. And many of those machines still work. Yeah, it's it's what's called a working museum. I mean, it's not just a view. You actually see the whole process going on of how uh, yarn was spun in um, the 18th and 19th centuries and uh, how many of these people worked and what their daily activities would be like at the mill complex. And, of so, course, entailing yeah. sometimes 12- to 14-hour workdays. Oh, yes. They see that you can uh, get a feeling for the rigors of the 18th and 19th century work shifts in the mills. And it's a fascinating historic site, uh, even uh, apart from the hauntings. We're just lucky that it seems to be haunted as well. Well, it, the buildings have all the mechanics, so to speak, of a haunting that would be set up for a haunting for paranormal activity. For example, the Wilkinson Mill is made of New England rubble stone, and it has high mineral content, quartz, even trace um, minerals, gold, and, and it's limestone. And, uh, you know, a lot of these are conductors, of course, and plus the rushing water, the running water of the Blackstone, which also has a high mineral content within it, uh, powered by the water wheel. And plus, you know, that combined with the history of it, uh, you figure something would be happening there. I mean, this is a, a site that operated for a long time as, as a museum before the paranormal even became part of, of their curriculum there. Yes, indeed. Yes, and, and the uh, Slater Mill has been getting a lot of press lately because of the turbine restoration project. Um, they're restoring the turbines within Slater Mill itself, so it's going to run more officially on uh, water power, and it's you know, part of the... Uh, Green project too, of course, uh, to conserve on energy. Really going back to its root and and going on water power as opposed to uh, electricity. Because there's been times where for a single month they've received a like five thousand dollar electric bill. So uh, it really makes sense to be going back more to water power and thereby restoring the turbine. Sure. I mean, if if the river's right there, you might as well use it. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Some people have suggested in, in Pawtucket that, hey, you could power the city of Pawtucket with these turbine wheels in the Slater Mill. Well, it's not going to be that expansive a project, but it should be able to provide heat and lighting for the Slater Mill complex, and that will be remarkable in itself. I think it's going to be exposed in National Geographic. It's certainly going to win national attention for Slater Mill. So it's just an interesting time and an interesting place. Well, I know working. people can go there and take tours uh, and and be involved with what goes on there, but from a paranormal aspect, what is it that you guys do? Oh, that's what keeps it interesting. That's what <laughs> makes it even more fun. Um, you never know when there's going to be some some example of paranormal activity. This place could seem dormant for weeks. Then I'll be giving a tour, and, and Keith has had the same experience, and You'll hear something move or see an object like a spool of thread, like fly off a ledge, or a chair will move. I'll tell you, I wish I had $20, well, actually, I wish I had $50 for every time a guest on a tour asked me, is your mill haunted? (laughs) It doesn't happen every day, but it has happened during the daytime. And I personally think the place is spookier in the daytime when something odd like that happens. 
because it's like, oh, in bright daylight, you can't get away from it. And it's, it can be a gloomy-looking place because, well, it's a restored spinning mill. It's Slater Mill and Wilkinson Mill, a dark, restored machine shop. And it's kind of eerie-looking because there are no workers there anymore. So when you hear somebody whistling, you turn around, nobody's there, uh, a lady has her hair lifted or uh, a tool flies across the room, chair moves, uh, propelled by an unseen force. In the daytime, I think that's even spookier than if it happens at night. At nighttime, in this kind of environment, you almost expect something weird to happen. But what happens in the daytime, some people have said, uh, why did that chair move? What did I hear? Uh, I Somebody touched me. I turned around. There was nobody there. I saw a little girl looking at me out of that window, and I'm like, oh, good, one more story to tell. <laughs> it's just an enjoyable place to work. Well, it's, what's interesting is you you would expect as investigators that a, a location like that would have a, a ton of residual haunting just based on the, the factors, as Keith mentioned, and the fact that you know you have so much energy expended there from people working for so long that it's it's got to get trapped in there somehow. So there should be an imprint in the place. But when you have actual intelligent haunt going on and it's interacting with you, that's going to be even more fascinating because now you've got to assume you're dealing with spirits from long ago. Yeah, what's, what's interesting is that inside the Wilkinson Mill, the haunting aspect, the paranormal activity, does seem to be residual, whereas inside Slater Mill itself and the Sylvanus Brown House, it seems to be more intelligent, more interactive. Yeah, it sounds like in in the buildings Keith mentioned, uh, Slater Mill and the Sylvanus Brown House, Memory Cottage, it's as though some force is saying, I see you, you know, they... they Seem to like guess there. There, in those two buildings, there seems to be intelligent, responsive haunting. Where in the Wilkinson Mill machine shop and the water wheel pit, it seems to be a replay. That is where people report seeing the shadowy form of a workman moving about, and it just seems to, to be some worker that's going about his business. Some long deceased workman there. Um, more interactive in Slater Mill and the Brown House. Wouldn't you agree with that, Keith? Yes, I would. So it's in it's in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. The website is slatermill.org? Yeah, yeah. I mean, www.slatermill.org, or just do a search for Slater Mill, and you'll come to it. Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And, what, and when do the tours usually take place? Well, actually, I was giving a series of tours this afternoon. Uh, we open to the public the first full weekend in March, and uh, people can come in without an appointment and take a tour for a small fee throughout the site. It's generally a 90-minute to two-hour long tour through the site, and we elucidate about the history, how the mills came to be, why they are positioned where they are. And I'll always throw in a haunted story or two, especially if we have the school children on field trips. As I bribe them with the ghost stories, and you listen to everything we're telling you, we'll give you a ghost story. Also, they get to uh, try out some of the water-powered machines in the Wilkinson Mill. So, uh, wow, that's really they, cool. they think it's Six Flags when the school children come there you know, on field trips. You brought up an interesting point, Carl. That's uh, Chris Balzano and I were just talking about this uh, yesterday about how we're kind of bribing kids to learn about history by throwing in those ghost stories. And, and But you can tell, you know, that's that's the hook to get them involved in these things because otherwise their eyes kind of just gloss over with history. And it's, it's a shame, but I think more teachers are going to have to start bringing the paranormal into the classroom <laughs> to get the point across. Well, especially it seems more consistent with the older students. Uh, they're less 
enchanted by the history more disenfranchised so you can you can bribe them if they're ninth grade up you kind of need to pull out the ghost stories but it's inevitable anyway because keith and i find we're recognized from the television show ghost hunters and other appearances we've made people say you're the ghost hunter so it's long as we get that recognition factor, we might as well use it to our benefit and say, okay, you get a ghost story about Slater Mill if you listen. And did the did the, the paranormal stuff involved with Slater Mill, did that kind of become part of its reputation? I know that they were on Ghost Hunters. Was that kind of the kicking off point for them to talk about this as, as part of what goes on there? Actually, that began with a story that our educational director at Slater Mill was telling about uh, how he had trouble arming the bill with the uh, mill with a motion sensor in Slater Mill Museum, couldn't get the code to arm the building with a motion sensor. Uh, went upstairs, went all through the building, nothing seemed to miss, no doors ajar, no windows open. So the uh, the motion sensor company advised him to just leave it uncoded. That night, the next day, they would send their technician out to check through the system. Well, the technician showed up the next morning, checked through the system thoroughly, and there was nothing wrong with it. We don't know why the sensors indicated that there was a group of people moving back and forth upstairs in Slater Mill. In fact, the first thing out of the ordinary I ever experienced there was I'd been working there about three weeks. This was four years ago. I heard footsteps walking back and forth on the floor above me. So before I left for the day, I went upstairs to say good afternoon to whoever was still up there, and there was nobody up there. Uh, You asked how Slater Mill became recognized as a haunted setting. That actually commenced with, uh, you know, our educational director telling that story, and then uh, somebody who was writing a book came to interview me. He heard that one of the ghost hunters was working at Slater Mill. This was Matt Hoyle, and he wrote a book called Encounters. And he came to interview me for his book in 2006. And uh, so there is a page and an interview on the next page uh, about my experiences in the mill. It has my picture, and it says, Trouble at the the Old Mill. When his book was published, word got out that Slater Mill has a haunting. Uh, apparently, Ghost Hunters was alerted to this through that book, and uh, the team of TAPS came to Slater Mill and did an investigation there, which was televised for their show. And uh, the recognition just keeps growing. One vehicle of uh, getting the word out that Slater Mill is haunted are the ghost tours that I designed. It's a program I developed for Slater Mill, and Keith and I conduct those in the fall, and they are very well attended. People can come through the mill site in the evenings and go on a ghost hunt and hear something of the history behind the history, some of the more intriguing tales and lore of Slater Mill site and Pawtucket. Well, that's one of the things that we try to tell historical spots uh, that we come in contact with is use that to your advantage. You know, uh, ten years ago, if there was a ghost story associated with a place, they'd want to downplay it and they'd say, oh, no, 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 this, this place isn't haunted. But now they have to kind of use that because, for one, it's popular right now in the media and, and amongst people, so it's a good hook to bring people in. But for another thing, a lot of these sites are kind of suffering in attendance and in, uh, in, in revenue being brought in, so they need to kind of bring that as, as the, new, the new income maker for them. Well, Slater Mill has its own recognition factor, its sure. own draw being the birthplace of the American Industrial Revolution, but it really has increased renown and revenue for Slater Mill that is known on a haunted site because many of our visitors come saying, well, 
we heard your mill is haunted. And then I'll look at Keith and me and say, wait a minute, I know you. you you're on television. Uh, tell me about the hauntings in your mill. And if they want to take a tour and hear the ghost stories at the same time, I'm more than happy to oblige them. But it's even beneficial to, I mean, most towns here in New England have, you know, that one house that's in the, in town that's, you know, the the birthplace of some important person in the town's history and they they keep it as a historic site and they bring try to bring the school kids in for tours i know in wareham we have a few of them but you know you can't get them to go there unless you use that ghost as a hook and and the fact that slater mill of course always already has reason for people to go there but a lot of these smaller historic sites can really use that that bump right now yes it has been beneficial i mean as long as the word is out that it's a suspected haunted site. There's no nothing wrong with bringing people in because they get to hear the history. People will ask, "Why do you think it's haunted?" And I'll say, "Well, this is what went on in this building or that building." And Slater Mill is accessible to everyone. Anybody can look up on a map or GPS where is Slater Mill, and they can come visit the site. And uh, well, if you look at these buildings. Even from the outside, they lend themselves to a haunting. It looks like a haunted site. You go inside, the interior is even more so. If it wasn't haunted, it should be. It's just that Keith and I and many of our guests and much of the staff have experienced things that can't be explained away by anything other than paranormal activity. I mean, that's the advantage, too, Keith, is you know the stories are going to just pop up anyway. Oh, yeah. So if, if they just happen to be true, it's all the better. And what's interesting is that many of the school children, they come away with not only an appreciation of the history of the place, but also an appreciation for the time we're living in, because they see what horrendous conditions children their age had to live in back then, especially those who worked in the mill. I mean, part of the reason that young children were hired for the mill was because they had small, nimble fingers and bodies, and they could actually climb in where adults could not. They could climb into the machines and untangle something while the machine's running, you see. And so they were often sent in while, you know, adults stood clear. We have actually some machines that, believe it or not, at the time only children ran them because it was considered too dangerous for adults to work on. Wow. You know, that, that's how much times have changed. And uh, really, really... Um, you know, the time we're living in is vastly different from there, and uh, the incredible, um, horrendous labor conditions that some of these whole families had to uh, had to live in. And they considered themselves lucky that they had jobs like that. Well, there's probably, to, this, to show you the disconnect some kids might have from history, I'm sure you've had you know, a hand or two raised uh, during these tours, and the kids ask, well, were they allowed to listen to their iPods while they worked? Oh, yeah, we get, we get things like that, yes. We get, we get a little questions like that once in a while, yes. So, yeah. My favorite question has been, um, well, one time we had a second grade class there, and one boy asked, did God make animals? So that was that's a hard one to field. <laughs> <You're> like, that's, <laughs> that's not part of the tour one. curriculum. Uh, yeah. We'll be happy to uh, save that for the Q&A portion yeah. of, uh, of our next paranormal lecture. Right. But uh, the place can be spooky in the daytime. It's, I mean, and at night, at night it's even, uh, I mean, it takes on a whole different aspect because you come into the beginning of Slater Mill, the front of Slater Mill, and, of course, we ring the bell for everyone. Um, you come in and there's this portrait, this very, very lifelike portrait of Samuel Slater. 
which uh, takes on a whole different aspect of, at night when you see it. Then you turn the corner, there's a life-size mannequin of a 10-year-old boy that, that is very lifelike, and that is really, I mean, I was taking a uh, private group there, a paranormal group there, I was doing an investigation last year, and I t- warned them that there's a very lifelike mannequin around the corner. One of them got ahead of me, and I guess he'd forgotten that I'd warned him, and all of a sudden I heard these two bellowing screams, and, oh, no, he's met the mannequin, and uh, <laughs> I came running to, to save him. I mean, uh, I thought the guy was going to drop on the spot. <laughs> well, make sure, you don't, make sure you don't take Brian Hanwa there, then, because oh, yeah, you know, but, you know uh, how he uh, feels about those things. Yep. Yeah, he gets very unnerved by anything that's... Uh, lifelike mannequin or dolls or anything. Dolls especially. Dude, knock over that mannequin and run! Yes. <laughs> All right, we, we only have a few minutes left in the show here, but we do have a call on the line, so let's take that real quick. Be happy to. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Keith and Carl Johnson. How you doing? How you doing? Hey, Carl. Hey, Keith. How you doing? It's John from NEPR. Hi, John Brightman. How you doing? Hey, how are you? Good to talk how to you. How you doing, guys? Dina uh, says hi. Yeah, I tell her I said hi, too. The I, just girl. To, I just wanted to call in and say hi to you guys and uh, thank Tim for putting the word out tonight for me. And, uh, and no problem. Spooky South Coast, I really appreciate it. Not a problem at all. And, and Keith and Carl, of course, being two of the, the key speakers at the uh, at the event. Yes, yes absolutely. And uh, it, it's, it's, I'm glad to have them aboard. It's going to be a good time. We're well, we'll working with both of them. And, uh, of course, I, I know you guys have been wanting to get out into the Freetown State Forest at night, and at least you'll have an experienced guide to bring you out there. Great. Fantastic. Mm. I want to look for some of those puckwudgies out there. <laughs> puckwudgies in Native American lore are diminutive little figures that harass travelers and uh, very mischievous. Our versions of the leprechauns and gnomes. So Maybe you can catch one and bring them back to the mill. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. For some reason, I can't be a live puckwudgie. I picture the Puxwudgies as these tiny little Chris Belzanos running around for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Actually, I don't know if they'd be any different than the regular size Chris Belzano. <laughs> oh, come on. I know he's listening, so I figured I'd throw it in. Dude, run! Yeah. <laughs> I hear a dude run. It's not going. That's a residual in the background. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, certainly... Uh, uh, Everything that goes on in the Freetown State Forest is, is fair game for, for those investigations. Uh, just make sure you stay away from the, the criminals that might still be out there. Oh, yeah. We, uh, don't mistake them for puckwudgies. Right. Yeah. Or zombies, yes. Puckwudgies right. don't ask for your money. <laughs> well, thank you, John. We have another call actually coming in, so let's try and see if we can take that real quick. But, John, we'll talk to you before the event for sure. Thank you, Thanks John. Thank you very much, guys. And Kyle, Keith, I look forward to talking with you guys. We look forward to it. We too. Right, have, a, have a good night. Yep. All right. Good evening. You were on Spooky South Coast with Keith and Carl Johnson. How you doing? How you doing? Hi. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How you doing, Keith and Carl? We lost Hi Keith there. here, but we'll 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 see if we get him back. But you have we a question, Keith, real quick. But I'm still here. Yeah, I had a real quick course. question. Um, I'm doing a lot of cases up in my area here in New England, um, where I'm starting to notice a trend with is moving water or something near the places where we're going. And with a slate of millers kind of right there on the Blackstone River, do you think that there's some type of correlation with uh, the, the area around the building itself? I be do, because uh, running water, especially if it has a high mineral content, is going to generate a low-grade electric charge that's going to pervade the atmosphere. And that's just one more factor. Limestone content under the soil, uh, rushing water with mineral content, uh, that's what the Blackstone River has that uh, winds around 
Slater Mill site. So I think that uh, is another factor contributing to the paranormal activity there. Yeah, I very much think that uh, a body of water nearby, especially water in motion, is going to lend itself to powering a haunting. All right. Well, thank you very much for the call. Thanks. And uh, take care. Have a good night. We, we apologize. We lost Keith. Uh, and I, <laughs> I thought that might happen. I thought that the news line was locked in so that if you did take another call off, that line would stay on too. Oh my God. Apparently it's not like that anymore. Yeah, I don't think Keith will take it personally. I hope no. he doesn't. I'll explain I, it to him. I can guarantee you it's probably not the first time that we've hung up on Keith Johnson. <laughs> and every time it's always been unintentional, I promise okay. that. Okay, yes. All right, Carl, well, thank you for joining us tonight, and, and thank you for sharing with us in, in the, the life and the work of H.P. Lovecraft. Again, if anybody wants to get involved with that, it's on Sunday, March 14th from 3 to 4 p.m., the Lad Observatory, 210 Doyle Avenue at the corner of Hope Street in Providence. It's free to the public. Come down in your Gothic attire, your 19th century attire. Come down in any attire, really. Or at, uh, le- at least some attire. Dress somehow. Yes. Oh, yeah. I would, just before we sign off, I would like to share a very brief quote from H.P. Lovecraft. Absolutely. Who wrote, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. That's from H.P. Lovecraft himself. That's, I might get that tattooed on me. <laughs> Winding around your torso. All right. Well, thank you very much, Carl. And, thank you, too. And we will talk to you soon. Sure. All right. Well, that'll do it for tonight's program. Next week, we will be back. Huge show. I promise you, next week, we're going to have Laura Magdalene Eisenhower. Does that name sound familiar? She's the great-granddaughter of President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Apparently, she was recruited to take part in some secret Mars colony that's going to help preserve mankind. She's going to tell us all about that and more. The inside story of UFOs, President Eisenhower, the Mars colony, it's all on the table next week. We'll be back at our regular time right here on Spooky South Coast. Until then, from Matt Moniz, from Matt Costa, we want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. I haven't had a chance yet. I'll it's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, tomorrow. First with local news, talk, and sports. This is WBSM New Bedford, Citadel Broadcasting, AM 